This is the Made It in Music Podcast, show 108. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming. That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Seth Mosley, host of the Made It in Music podcast. Today, we've got Eddie DeGarmo, one of the founding fathers of an entire genre of music. This episode is a little longer than usual, but I encourage you to stick around to the end. I was so enthralled in the conversation that I just kind of felt like, man, we should just keep talking. This guy has stories for days. He's been in the business for decades now, has come as an artist, has migrated to the role of a record label executive and publisher, and now as an author. He just released his first book, Rebel for God. Go and check that out on Amazon. I know I'm going to. And we are actually giving away a free signed copy of that book. All you have to do is tweet us at officialfcmusic on Twitter. And all it needs to include is your favorite moment from one of the Made It in Music podcasts. And for those of you who have been with us for a long time, Yes, it can include some of our past podcasts from the first season, from the original season, we'll call it, of the Full Circle Music Show. So all you got to do to win a free copy of Rebel for God signed by the Eddie DeGarmo is tweet us at official FC Music and include whatever your favorite moment or quote or tip or trick or something that you learned from our podcast. That's all. Super easy. So let's dive into this episode. It's a long one. I want you guys to stick with us. It's very, very well worth it. Have a notebook ready. This is a crash course in music business. I feel like I got a entire year's worth of college just in this one conversation. So stick with us. And here is Eddie DeGarmo in the Full Circle Music Studios in Franklin, Tennessee. Eddie DeGarmo, we're here in the studio at Full Circle Music on the Made It Music Podcast. Thanks for being here with us today. It's wonderful to be here with you guys. This is... I. I'm so excited about this episode. I know Stacy's been super excited about it, and she's normally not one of the co-interviewers on our podcast, but I thought she has to do it today. She helps us look better. I mean, let's, let's face <laughs> that it. That was the main reason. <laughs> but because you guys have had a long, you know, working relationship together, and she has just talked so much about you over the years, so I was like, she's going to have uh, a, an entirely different angle on your story than probably I would yeah. even. She's got the dirt. Yeah. She's got the dirt, basically. She'll know the right questions <laughs> back. That's yeah, right. <laughs> but um, not only that, but because really, I mean, wh- where I'm at in, in Christian music today and where Full Circle is, is largely, um, you know, very influenced by what you did and what you created in terms of blazing a trail mm-hmm. for what is currently our industry and really influenced everything. And um, so I've been really excited about that because you're not just in the middle of a career. You've you've went through the arc of artist, you know, music executive, and now you're on the other side of it. So I was confused. 
I couldn't decide which which was going to be, you know, at the moment. So, yeah, but I, I love it. So let's just dive straight in. So what was your first dollar that you ever made in the music business? Well, to go way, way back, you know, because uh, I think we have to go there to talk about our first dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the first dollar I ever actually made in the music business was I trick-or-treated at Graceland <laughs> and Elvis Presley gave me a signed dollar bill. The, the Elvis. The Elvis. And who knows when it was, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And me, like any other <laughs> six-year-old little punk, I went out and spent it the next day. Uh, so that was the first dollar I made in the music Somebody has business. that sign. That's incredible. <laughs> but my, my mother played piano in our church back in the North. Well, I was in Detroit in those years, and she started me on piano when I was three. Mm-hmm. My family moved to Memphis in the late 50s, and I grew up in Memphis influenced by all the different music, you know, that was going on. And Memphis was like a mecca in those days for music. You had Stax Records with artists like Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and, you know, and then you had uh, Al Green and those guys over at High Records. And I started my first dance band uh, when I was 10. And uh, it's a pretty cool story, actually, because people say, how'd you get started in Christian music? Well, for me, it started at the the West Memphis dog track. Mm-hmm. My dad, the good Baptist, went over one night and won 1200 bucks, <laughs> and <laughs> took me out the next day and bought me a Farfisia organ. Wow. You know, well, I think I think his ulterior motive was I'd started playing drums and I was driving the family crazy. And they're like, you know, we got we to gotta do something with this kid. <laughs> so, they bought me, so they bought me an organ. And because it was a really cool keyboard, I think still is probably, mm-hmm. you know, um, I started getting invited to be in bands with kids that were a lot older than me. They were high school and even beyond. And so I started playing dances from the time I was 10 or 11. And uh, So you were the kid with a cool organ. I was so a, they, yeah, they I, don't, I don't know if along. I knew how to play very well, but yeah. I could, you know, chord a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And um, so I, that's where I started. And I've never done anything in my life significant other than music as far as a business or a career goes. Mm. Signed my first deal when I was 15 yeah. with, with a major. So that so that's unheard of. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. It was with High Records, which was a subsidiary of London Records, which London was a huge company, mainstream company that had groups like the Rolling Stones and ZZ Top and all those kind of groups back in those days. And High was their affiliate in Memphis, which had Al Green, which was like, tearing it up, you know, with like number one songs. And they signed our band, which in my band was Dana Key and eight others. We were a 10-piece soul band. Holy cow. We had four (laughs) horn players, you know, and stuff. And funny, neither Dana or I sang. There were other singers. You know, the only we we started singing when we formed our first Christian group because we couldn't find anybody else to sing. (laughs) So that's the way that worked. So uh, we signed our deal and uh, worked on a couple records, you know, had one 45 that was played around town, you know, because 45s were big deals in those days. That's a single mm-hmm. in today's finale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we call them 45s. And uh, so, you know, when I was 17, just kind of, you know, unbeknownst, I had this wake-up call with God and dedicated my life to Christ. Mm. And it was an interesting day because it was a it was a fellow named Dallas Holm who's a singer, acoustic singer, and a, an evangelist named David Wilkerson that were doing a thing in town that my older brother invited me to, and I hadn't been involved in church in a long time, and so I went and I was touched that day, but not really 
that was in the morning. The afternoon, I went to a music festival and saw all my friends, and they were definitely all ripped and high and all that mm. sort of thing. And it was like, really? You know, this is different. And I went back to church that night and made a decision to dedicate my life to Christ. I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I actually went home and was like so freaked out about it. I, and I'm, I'm not an emotional guy necessarily, but I like cried at my bed because I like knew that God was going to like mm. make me quit my band. Wow. And I was bummed out. Wow. I was like, God, you know, do we have to do this? Mm. And so over the next few months, that became apparent that things had changed for me. And uh, I went back to school the next day and s saw my friend who played guitar in her band, Dana Key. And I said, Dana, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, I found Jesus. He goes, mm. I didn't know he was missing, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which was a good thing to say. And so I said, yeah, man, I'm serious. And we skipped school. And so I went and told him what happened to me. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to skip school in those days. <laughs> so we skipped. And uh, I you know, told him what had happened the day before. And it turned out he was going through a lot of the same weird stuff that you know, that we were going through in those days. We were probably not any different than what young people go through today, but it was the late 60s, early 70s, and it was a very tumultuous time in our country, mm. if you will. And so a lot of confusion. Yeah. And uh, we were products of all that. Mm. And uh, our entree to Christian music was really organic. It wasn't like, hey, man, we're going to form a Christian band. It was like, we started writing songs that reflected how we felt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what writers do. That's what artists sing about. They sing, you know, hip-hop people write about the street. Country people write about pickup trucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, pop artists write about, you know, boy-girl songs. Mm -hmm. You know, or, well, I won't go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, and Christian artists, you know, I think, are driven to write about their values and their faith. And we've we've made an industry grow up around that, which sometimes can be confining to some artists, you know, because if you know, I remember just a sidebar, total sidebar, DC Talk. We were working on their, I think it was their third album, and they had never been on the radio. And they had covered an old song called Lean On Me. Lean on yeah. me. Yeah. You know, and they were like, can't we get the radio to play that? And I said, you know, not unless we go in and do some ad libs on it. You know, help us, Father. You know, mm. we love you, Jesus. I, and they said, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And they said, that's so cheesy. And I said, yeah, kind of. But I said, if we want to reach out and shake hands with these people, that's what it's going to take. Mm -hmm. And so we did. We did it all, and it all worked. Man, I want to I want to revisit that part of the conversation because that in that little thirty second story about that is is pretty huge, and how most artists never quite learn to navigate that balance. So I do want to come back to that. But when I guess it sounds like because you were fifteen years old when you got your first record deal, like were you ever not full time in it? Like, I mean, or was it just kind of from the beginning? Well, full-time in music, I think for a lot of us that do that, or, or in the arts or in theater or in anything that's one of those types of pursuits, for a lot of us is bivocational or trivocational. You know, you, you play music because you love it, but you do something else to, you know, to eat, yeah. if you will. And I was playing in dance bands all through high school, but I was also working at a men's clothing store. 
which I didn't necessarily like that much, but I did. I was actually voted best dressed in my high school, believe it or not. What happened? <laughs> what awesome. happened to me? You know? Well, it's because I had to go to work wearing what I, yeah, I yeah. go to school rather, wearing what I had to go to work in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but yes, I've played music my entire life. And when I wasn't playing music, I was trying to figure out how to. Mm. But I've done a lot of things. My dad was a home builder, which turned into really something that was handy because, you know, I knew how to do stuff with my hands mm -hmm. and, you know, work on houses and stuff like that, which proved invaluable in the early days of Christian music because it was a trade that I could come and go at. And, you know, I could paint houses or build somebody a porch and then go out and play concerts, you know. Yeah. And so that yeah. worked out. Interesting. Man, so there's this whole... I resonate a lot with your story because I, I feel somewhat the same. I never achieved nearly the level of influence or success as an artist as you did, but um, in terms of being entrepreneurial and having all these different facets or pursuits, like it, it just doesn't seem like one thing of it was like enough. So you obviously went through, maybe take us through, you know, DeGarmo and Key, and then what happened after that to transition you from artist to the label guy. Yeah. Well, when we formed DeGarmo and Key, which I still to this day can't believe that we chose that as a name, you know? <laughs> it worked. It worked yeah. really well. Yeah. It was like kind of complicated. <laughs> There's a whole nother story about that too. But uh, when Dana and I became Christians, we were still in our mainstream dance band that was signed to London. And that that stayed going for about another three months until we just drove them nuts and they, you know, mm. didn't want us around anymore. <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, when we first left, High and London had options to us because we were signed, you know, and so mm -hmm. they wanted to hear our music, and so we recorded some demos and sent them to them, and, and they were like, man, how do we sell this stuff, you know, because it's about God. We don't know how to do that, so they released us. Mm -hmm. Dana and I really didn't know there was much of an industry for Christian music. In fact, mm -hmm. the the only thing that we knew much about in Memphis in those days was Southern gospel groups. Mm. You know, they had cool suits. And they dressed well. They dressed well. They had cool hair. A lot of times they matched the suits, <laughs> you know. True. <laughs> and, uh, and they had tour buses, which was mm. anomaly, you know. But that was really all we knew much mm. about Christian music. And then Dana one day, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment, three of us. And we had our beds lined up like army barracks in Midtown Memphis. Mm. And we had formed a band. And because we were so humble, we called ourselves the Christian Band. You know, we didn't take a name. That was literally the name? That was the name, the Christian Band. The guy that, that had signed us to High really liked us. And he had, a, he had a big studio room downtown in the ghetto of Memphis. And he let us rehearse there. And it was a big, it was a converted furniture store, so it was a big open space. And over a period of about three or four months, the young people around Memphis heard that there was a Christian group that was playing every Wednesday and Thursday night at this little furniture store. Mm -hmm. So they started showing up. And first it was a couple people, then it was dozens, and then it was hundreds, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it just all happened because we couldn't find anybody to hire us. You know, we went out and tried to play the bar circuit and figured out uh, that, you know, that maybe didn't work as good as we thought it might. <laughs> and 
just a little sidebar on that. I mean, I've worked with a lot of artists that want to approach the mainstream that way. And I'm like, well, if it's your calling to be a mainstream, I said, don't feel guilty about that at all. But I said, going to a bar and preaching from stage is not really why people come there. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and I said, if, you, if you're looking for success in your calling and in your ministry, I said, I think you might be more successful sitting at the bar stool and just talking to people. You know, because, I mean, you're paid to do a certain musical thing, you know, especially if, if, unless you're known. I mean, if you're a known group and people buy tickets to come see you, that's different. But, mm. you know, if you're just getting going, um, the bar circuit can be tough for a Christian group that is vocal about their faith, mm. I think. Yeah. I, having been one that's done it. Yeah. Man, so rebel, I mean, rebel for God, I, I guess— you know, we were talking a little bit about this before, but just the idea of it being called, uh, you know, even devil music at the time. Like, was that a, was that a thing that? Yeah, that you, and it was, you know, it was a consequence that we never thought about when we first started writing music. The only kind of music that we knew how to play was rock music. We had grown up in rock bands, Dana and I both, and our drummer that was with us at the time, and bass player. You know, and it was in the days of Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it was never a decision, well, we're going to play rock music. It was just what came out. Mm. You know, I guess maybe if we'd have lived in a different town or a different part of the country, something else might have emerged, Mm. you know. So we had no idea the controversy that we would have first in the bar circuit and turned into really a great, I think, testimony in that a lot of our old friends that knew us from when we were in our Main Street group before we knew Christ, were impacted by that, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of them really, you know, made decisions and dedicated their lives to Christ through that experience. And then when we started playing churches, oh my gosh, all hell broke loose. <laughs> we, we had no idea, you know, the minefield that we had stepped on there. And, I mean, I got thrown out of a lot of places, man. Mm-hmm. I've had tomatoes thrown at wow. me. Literally. Oh, yeah, literally. I've had cabbages thrown at me and, you know, just shut down in in places that you, that I don't want to go into on this Mm -hmm. interview, but you would recognize. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, universities and different things like that. And I've looked back on that and I said, well, that was painful. But then it was also, it was the impetus. It was kind of the thing that God used, I think, to popularize this whole Mm -hmm. art form. Because the newspaper writers and the magazine writers ate that stuff up. It was way, obviously way before the internet. But um, so they would always write about, well, can you sing about Jesus and play rock music? You know, and they would kind of leave it open, but they'd love, it was maybe it's like, you know, trying to turn your eyes away from a car wreck. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> but those newspapers and magazines popularized a lot of what we were doing. And in those days, I mean, there was really only a handful of us that that we began to learn about from Memphis. You know, Petra was about a year before us, mm-hmm. and they were doing it up in Indiana. And then there was Res Band, Resurrection Band, they called them in those days, from Chicago. And then the West Coast movement, you know, and this is certainly not disrespectful in any sense, but that movement to me was more acoustic-based music mm-hmm. than it was, you know, Wawa pedals and yeah, you know, yeah, it wasn't rock, yeah, rock based solos and all that sort of thing, yeah, you know, yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah, we got thrown out of a lot of places, but it, it actually turned out good. I've I've been to my own record burnings and offered to sell the people burning records copies. <laughs> really? <laughs> so you're gonna burn them, man? Buy some more. <laughs> you know, we, here's here's, here's more. Yeah, I'll help you. <laughs> free, it's like firewood, five bucks firewood, each, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a way to sell a CD, I guess. Freaked them out. Man, (laughs) even just that. It's just amazing. I mean, how many artists do we know that could legitimately say they've had cabbages thrown at them or tomatoes thrown at them or records literally set on fire? I mean. It was a a different day. I mean, you know, we were were on the edge of, of a cultural movement that, you know, a lot of people didn't understand. And it's. Yeah, we weren't the first. I mean, you go all the way back to the 50s and Elvis Presley shaking his hips on TV, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it goes way before us. But I don't know that all that's a bad thing, actually. I I think it's an all right thing that we as Christians in the church are at least wary about certain cultural movements and we should, you know, try to find the truth in them and all that sort of thing. Mm. But if you ask yourself the question, what kind of music does God like? I mean, that's it, a pretty deep well. Mm-hmm. You know, does he mm-hmm. does he like the Western tone structure more than the Eastern tone structure? Mm-hmm. You know, does he like country more than rock? Does he like non-lyrical music, you know, the, the classics more than he likes lyrical music? Mm-hmm. I mean, basically... You know, you, that's a circular question because you find yourself, well, I guess he can like anything that's not against, you know, what he's what he's there for. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, whether it's mainstream or Christian based and I mean, those those can be questions that can take different paths. You know, uh, I can only imagine that song most of us would say it was a Christian song, but it was widely played on mainstream radio. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, Jesus take the wheel. I mean, you know, uh, and there's, you know, spirit in the sky. I mean, right. my gosh, it goes yeah. all over the place. Uh, and if you if you are one that that's, has read the Bible or, or studies it at all, you can talk about any subject. My gosh, you can talk about, you know, wars and peace and, you know, love and hate and, I mean, you can go anywhere you want to do. I think it's all about your perspective and as a writer and how you portray those things at the end of the day gives a definition. I often tell artists, I said, you know, in Jesus' day, there were no Bible publishers and there were no Christian record companies. Mm. So what did he think about them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, and it's for some, it's become a profit center, which I understand that, you know, we all want to feed our families and make a living. But I'm not sure in in a world that's not a fallen world, I, I don't know that we would have Christian labels and uh, Christian Bible publishers the same way that we do today. It's because that we live in a fallen world. What, what do you mean by that? Because that's, I mean, that's a pretty deep... It's pretty deep. Well, what I mean by that, if, if you take a look at the advent of the Christian record company, you know, I think the oldest one, modern the oldest one, it's probably a better way to say that, would be the Benson Company. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like 1903. You know, at one time they were the largest music publisher in Nashville, you know, and then became a record company and that sort of thing. So, you know, pretty new business. 
In the 40s and 50s, mainstream companies did a lot of Christian music products and signed a lot of Christian music albums. Tennessee Ernie Ford, the Chuck Wagon Gang, the Blackwood Brothers, all those artists in those days were, you know, on a mainstream Columbia Records, RCA Records, whatever, mm. you know, Warner Brothers. And in the early 60s, I think with the, what they call it, the counterculture revolution, the mainstream companies start stopped doing those kinds of products so much. Mm. And so a need arose for a solution to get that kind of music out to the public. And so, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s, Word Records and Benson Records started creating those products. And they kind of grew into this siloed business mm. that didn't used to exist quite the same way that it that it did during the 70s and 80s and 90s. Now, the interesting thing about the Christian music business today is it's mostly owned, the large ones, by the, the entertainment companies, mm. the large entertainment companies, you know. So, in a way, it's kind of gone back to that. It's kind of gone back to that in a different way to where they have business units that focus on that. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, I've worked in the mainstream music business for many years and had a lot of people that I worked with that were from different backgrounds, Jewish, a lot of them, you know, and I asked my boss one time in New York, I said, why do you guys, why do you do Christian music? Why, Why is that? What's, he goes, Eddie, he said, it's like the, it's like good, clean fun, man. (laughs) <laughs> good, good, clean fun. You know, but I started thinking about what he was saying, and, and then he, he he added on to it later. He said, "Look, man," he said, "we go through so much madness in the mainstream, you know, with with some of the artists and some of the different stuff." And he said, "And you, you know, you guys don't cause us any grief on that level, mm-hmm. you know." And so, as long as you make your your numbers and your goals. Mm. I've never, never been asked to do anything from the mainstream that I felt was a compromise, except for one time, uh, with my faith. Mm. You know, the the artist Prince uh, did a record in the mid '90s mm. that, uh, at the time, EMI wanted to take to Christian radio, and came and talked to me about it. And I told my boss at that time his name man's name was Charles Koppelman. I said, Mr. Koppelman, you're my boss and I'll do what you ask me to do, you know, because I respect you that way. But I said, I want you to know if we do this, it's going to seriously, uh, I think, wound the integrity of my business, mm-hmm. you know, because we have relationships at media and at radio and all of our buddies are going to say, well, why are you promoting somebody that obviously doesn't promote Christian values mm-hmm. at that time? Nothing against Prince, you know, mm-hmm. but... Uh, he didn't come from that place, mm-hmm. you know. And so he's like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, if we take that out there, I said, there's going to be a lot of backlash. So you got to be ready for it. But mm. if you want me to do it, I'll do it. Wow. He's like, well, I would never ask you to do anything that would hurt your business. He said, I had no idea. Forget I ever asked. Wow. You know, wow. but that's the only time I've ever been asked that question. Why would they want to take Prince to Christian radio? I mean, he had, what? He had a couple gospel songs or pseudo gospel songs on his on his album. It was a record called Emancipation <laughs> in the wow. late nineties. You know, yeah. And he did end up cutting a Nicole Norman song. There you go. Mm-hmm. Wow. So 
let's transition into your time, obviously, as a record, record exec, because I don't want to monopolize the conversation. I know Stacy's sitting over there probably with a billion questions as she's been going through your book and everything. So maybe you can kind of transition us into yeah, that Yeah, I would love to just know about the what that transition was like from DeGarmo and Key yeah. to deciding to start well, Forefront Records. We have to go back before Forefront to understand that, you know. Um, I started producing records, you know, when I was a teenager and kept doing that along to Garmo and Key. You know, I'd come home from tour and produce records in the studio. Mm-hmm. And Dana did some of that too. I didn't do it all alone. Uh, I had a production company in the in the late 70s, early 80s called Mint, M-I-N-T, Mint Productions. And we were producing stuff on Gary Chapman and Farrell and Farrell and all different kinds of groups, big 80s groups, you know. And so... The record business, I felt like, was a natural extension out of some of the things that I knew. But in in the late 80s, when we formed Forefront, there were four of us originally, our mission was, at that point in time, to focus on reaching the MTV generation. Because, you know, MTV, when it first came on the scene, galvanized an age group of people, you know. Mm. Not so much the same anymore. But did then, and so we wanted to make music that reached that demographic. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really anybody at that time uh, that was focused, you know, totally on that demographic. You had the big, the big record companies like Word and Benson, and I'm trying to think, Sparrow maybe was the other one. In those days, it was it was before the Provident. You know, uh, the Provident is kind of built on the ashes of Benson. You know, that's where that came from. So uh, we focused on, you know, music that we felt like reached our generation and uh, thus founded Forefront. Uh, It was five years into the business before I told anybody that I was an owner because I was still, still chasing my artist's career. And in those days, I didn't feel like it was cool to mix those things together. Mm-hmm. In today's world, you know, there's a lot of artists that want to boast about, you know, their labels and that sort of thing. But I, I wanted to keep it quiet because I didn't want any of our artists to feel competitive with my own career, mm-hmm. if you will. Wow. That's cool. And my job, as because we were at the peak of our career, our artist careers, I toured the groups. You know, DC Talk was on the road with us at the peak of our career for two years, you know, mm. which was, you know, they, they did the work, but we allowed them to have the platform, mm. which helped them grow into what they are now. And so I did that with several artists, audio drilling, you know, different ones. You know? Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't want them to know that I owned the label because I felt like, you know, why, why go there? Just, you know, make it clean. That's amazing That's- to me. So, <laughs> I did not know that part of the story. Yeah, yeah. I didn't tell anybody. How did that come out? Like, <laughs> I finally came out with it. Well, we we were in Memphis. Dana and I lived in Memphis at the time, and we formed Forefront in late '87. And about '91, '92, uh, we were ending our record commitment with the Benson Company. DeGarmo mm-hmm. Key was, and Forefront had grown. We had released. Uh, the DC Talk album mm. to great success, and we had released ETW, 
we had signed Jeff Moore. He had a big song called A Friend Like You. And there were a couple more. And so the label was growing and growing and growing. And D&K, I felt like, was doing really good. We were still still doing extremely well. But I didn't know if I could see another 10 years of that or another 15 years of that. Mm. So I felt like and started thinking like that maybe it was time for me to transition. And so when our record contract ended in 92 or 3, when something right along there, uh, Benson came to us and wanted us to re-sign another album commitment, you know, for three albums or something like that. And, you know, and it was really good for for us financially, but I felt like that I never really wanted to be the old boxer that was always trying to regain his title, mm. if you will. Mm. And so I stepped away when things were still really good and went full-time in the record business and moved my family from Memphis to Nashville. Mm. Wow. Frank, Franklin specifically. Yeah. You know, in 92. Wow. June 1st of 1992. And I went into the label and said, hey, guys, guess what? <laughs> you know, I've been here all along. You just didn't know it. <laughs> that is so, so hilarious. I'm sure the reaction, I'm just trying to picture the reaction to yeah, that. Yeah, Toby Mac, he's like, you know, I knew something was up. <laughs> he said, you talking to us on all those music festivals and stuff. I knew something was up. So, so. who did you start it with? Who who founded it with you? Because was it you and, and Dana? It's me and Dana and a fellow named Ron Griffin uh, and our manager, Dan Brock, the manager of DNK. Mm-hmm. And Dana only stayed in that business for about a year. Mm. He just, it, it wasn't cut out to his suit his gifts really and so we bought him out of it probably about a year in and Ron Griffin probably about two years in mm-hmm. and so the rest of the time it was Dan and, and me yeah. that did all that so how did you I mean I guess at the time you, you had enough success off of DeGarmo and Key where you, you guys were just sort of self-funding everything and it was your investment and well the, the way that that I mean, there's a story behind that. Um, in 1986, I guess, maybe 87, uh, D&K was the top-selling group at the Benson Company, and we were out of our contract. Mm-hmm. And Benson had fallen on some difficult times. They had been purchased by, by a big book publisher called Zondervan. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know... Anytime somebody buys another company, there's two or three years of adjusting and this and that and trying to figure all that out. And they had lost a couple of their really big artists, Sandy Patty, uh, Carmen, you know, we were their top act. And they were a little bit on the ropes as a record business. And so they came to us and they said, you know, we, and, you know, the industry was trying to woo us away. You know, Word was trying to sign a Sparrow couple more you know mm. and so we we did an interesting deal with Benson they they said look we understand why you would want to leave mm. so but what would it take you to stay mm. and uh, I, I said to him and it wasn't all my idea but I was able to deliver the idea I said well just give us back all of our records and our publishing mm. and we'll figure out a way to stay and they were like well let's talk through that yeah so we got back all of our DNK masters wow. and all of our songs that we from the beginning. Mm. 
we kind of had some hurdles that we had to deliver some records to get some records, deliver some records to get some records, you know, and that's what we've hammered out. But Forefront was founded on us taking that DNK catalog and licensing it internationally because mm. we had all the international rights immediately. And we made deals in Canada and in Europe and Australia and some other places. Mm. And that was what we funded Forefront with. Wow. Yeah, super that's, smart. I mean, that's how that worked. who who was the 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 brand? I mean, I guess like obviously somebody has to be thinking in terms of those type of deals. Is that naturally your? Well, way of- not not all mine. I mean, Dan Brock, our manager, was good at that sort of thing, and he I have to give him credit for some of that vision early on. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, I was still wearing striped pants and a pirate coat, you know, <laughs> bouncing around stage in those days. So, you know, he taught me a lot. And But I was also the guy, and I think you'll probably get this, but, you know, uh, even though I got to write, you know, half the songs or more or whatever through our career, I was always the guy trying to figure out how to get another tank of gas to get to the next mm-hmm. town, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was the guy that went to Dan and, and said, you know, hey, other bands sell T-shirts. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. He's like, no, man, we can't do that. I mean, that's a true story. (laughs) That's like ego. I said, well, yeah, but like we're in a rock band. I mean, you know. You're already in ego. Yeah, we're already in ego. (laughs) So anyway, so I I was definitely bent towards the business side from an early age. But uh, the structure of Forefront, Dan and Ron Griffin both were business guys. And so they helped direct some of our early steps that way. Mm. That's that's awesome. It's incredible. So then from Forefront to Capital, to EMI Christian, then to Capital. Tell us a little bit more about... Well, Forefront just grew and grew and grew, and it grew very fast. And we became the largest independent Christian record company in the world at the time. And, and then lo and behold, across the block, you know, Jars of Clay releases Flood. And it's a huge success, of course. Mm -hmm. And so all of our artists started coming to me and like, hey man, you know, can't we be on mainstream radio too? I mean, seriously, that Mm -hmm. was what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, maybe, but you know, we're we're not really geared for that. You know, we can get you on this kind of radio and that kind of radio and this video and that kind of video, but we're not a mainstream company. And the mainstream businesses at that time, it was one of their huge things that they pitched, one of their big ones. It's like, hey, you know, if your music suits the mainstream, we can help you get there. Mm-hmm. And as an artist, I mean, you always want to reach the most people. I mean, that's just a natural thing that you do. So it was very intriguing. Uh, I felt that we needed to partner with a mainstream company, at least, if not become part of a mainstream company early on to serve our artists where they wanted to go. Because mm-hmm. we, we were selling platinum and gold records on several of our mm-hmm. roster, mm-hmm. and we wanted to take them to the next level. So I began, you know, gently suggesting that we become part of a bigger entity. Mm-hmm. And that was about a two-year process and a painful process to some degree because we had built Forefront not to sell it, but it was just the climate, the business climate changed so dramatically around us. We felt like that was the mm-hmm. best thing to serve our artist community. Mm-hmm. That was really the driver for me. How was it painful in, the, in that process? Uh, well, I wanted 
I felt like I wanted to move it on, and my my partner at first did not. Mm. You know, he was like, "No, man, I don't ever want to do that." Mm. And I'm like, "Well, you know, we're going to have a hard time retaining these artists, and we're going to have a hard time attracting new artists because it was such a big part of the industry in those days." Mm. Uh, not totally. I don't want to blame Jars of Clay, but you know they had great success mm. with that first single, and uh, it set set us a little bit on our heels as to how we could repeat that. Mm-hmm. So we ended up becoming part of the EMI system, which at the time um, had a company <laughs> called Virgin Records that that took several of our artists, mainly DC Talk at first, mm-hmm. into their systems and promoted them to the mainstream. And DC Talk had some good success there with Between You and Me and uh, a couple other songs. Mm. So... Was that a type of deal where you sold it to, uh, I guess, EMI at the time? We did. We sold yeah. it 100% on the very first day. Wow. We yeah. felt like that was the right thing mm-hmm. to do. You know, there were all different kinds of scenarios. and But we felt like, well, if we're going to do this, we really want to be part of the family. And Bill Hearn, I give him a lot of credit for it. And his dad, Billy Ray, was still around. And they had sold Sparrow to EMI. And then EMI had purchased our distributor, which was a major in those days, called Starsong. And Starsong is just an imprint today, mm-hmm. you know, as I guess Forefront is too. But uh, Bill Hearn really wanted to build something special that could that could be a center for artist development, I felt like, and, and use the resources of a major entertainment company like EMI, you know, to to help with that. Mm-hmm. And so it started with Sparrow, then it was Starsong, then it was Forefront, then it was Tooth and Nail, then it was Part of Goatee, and then, mm-hmm. you know, a couple others. Mm-hmm. And so we became a hub for all that sort of thing. It's mm-hmm. awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then EMI, Christian Music Publishing. Tell us about how you, how you entered into that because you were... DeGarmo and Key, and then you were running a record label, and now you're. So I, I hung up my become artist. Become the top publisher. I hung up my artist boots in '94. The from '91 to '94, I worked at Forefront through the week and toured Thursday through Sunday with DNK, mm-hmm. and something had to give because I was never home, mm-hmm. and my lovely wife, we've been married 45 years. She claims it's only 22 and a half because I was gone so much. So <laughs> She's probably right. Probably right, yeah. Making yeah, up she, for that yes, now, right? Now making up for it. So um, I left Forefront. Dan Brock, my friend and partner, at the end of our employment agreements with, with EMI when we sold Forefront, he really wanted to do something different. Mm. And he felt like, I think, felt very strongly that both of us should leave together. We started the business together. We left together. So I left Forefront in 99. And uh, interesting, and this is a hand of God stuff. I don't think I'm smart enough to figure this one out. Mm. But when you sell a business, normally you have a provision that doesn't allow you to compete with the business that you sold for a period of time. Mm. Right? Mm. So I couldn't go back in the label business. But I had carved out Excuse me, I got a burp. I had carved out an exclusion on the music publishing business. Wow. And 
in my employment contract, in, my, in our sales agreement with EMI, I was allowed to be a music publisher. Huh. But not a label. Yeah. Uh, for another period of time. So... I formed a music publishing business in 1999, just an independent business called Mo Music, M-E-A-U-X. It's the original spelling of DeGarmo, D-E-G-A-R-M-E-A-U-X. Mm. But it was also really easy to trademark, you yeah. know. Yeah. But I also, coming from Memphis, Mo Music, Mo Barbecue, Mo yeah. Money. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, all, it all made sense. <laughs> so that's where it went. And... Uh, uh, in those early days of Mo Music, um, I was still involved with a couple of artists that I had signed at Forefront. Uh, uh, signed a 12-year-old girl named Stacy Arico that Bill Hearn asked me if I would continue to help her make her records, you know. And he had got me involved with a couple other big projects over there as an executive producer. There was a mini-series project that came out in the millennium called Jesus. There was a, it was a worldwide project in conjunction with the Vatican that was a motion picture all over the world and a mini-series on CBS television here for three nights. Mm. You know, big deal. Yeah. And we did soundtracks and, you know, and, and it was very mainstream driven, you know, Leanne Rhymes, we had a big song with her called I Need You that was a number one song in 98 Degrees and Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> you know, before we knew Darius Rucker's name, yeah. you know, but it was all very mainstream. And um, that project got me pretty involved with some folks that I hadn't known yet from New York and different mm -hmm. folks like that. So when I formed the music publishing business, it helped me on that level. And also, uh, I was very drawn, being a once a record producer, I was very drawn to working with record producers. Mm -hmm. And so I started managing producers. You know, people like Ted Chernholm and Pete Stewart and uh, Robert Marvin. I did not manage him, but I did publish him. Mm -hmm. And uh, two or three others, Mookie Taylor. Mm -hmm. And so I formed this small business and we did two things. We managed music producers, and we published their songs. Mm. And one of the songs that, that I published was written by a fellow named Mark Bird called God of Wonders. Mm. And that was my introduction to worship music. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. Well, it wasn't popular when we were a band, you know, in the church. And I knew very little about it. And so Bill Hearn called me one day and he goes, Eddie, he said, you're like killing me with this Mo Music thing, you know? I mean, seriously, this he's like, you're signing all my writers and, you know, I hate you. So, <laughs> what, what did that, like, so, you, I mean, just the Mark Bird thing, was he just one of your writers that you had mm -hmm. signed at the time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and was that with any intention of like breaking into the worship space or you just did, you nope. didn't even know it at no, the time? No, it was a Forrest Gump moment. It just happened. And wow. and the song blew up. Third Day recorded it and Steve Hendelong produced it and I think co-wrote the song with Mark. And uh, and Mark's, I don't, I don't know if you know Mark, he's a very, very good songwriter. And so we had some other success with some other songs and Mark was also a recording artist. He and his wife, uh, did a group together called Glass Something, but mm. never recorded on word. Mm. And Mark was from uh, an alt-rock band in the early 90s called Common Children. Mm. So yeah. he'd, he'd been around the block a little bit. But 
Uh, Mo grew to about, I don't know, 15 songwriters or something like that. Wow. And about half of them were music producers. And I had a staff that was working on Mo. And I was also, you know, creating this this stage musical called Hero out of Mo. That's something I always wanted to do. And Bill Hearn called me and he says, hey, hey, can we have lunch? And so I met with him and he said, man, I got this idea. He said, why don't you come in and run our music publishing business? And he said, you know, there's this new genre of music called worship music. And he said, it's just, we're just kind of getting off the ground with it, with uh, Delirious, mm-hmm. you know. And he said, I don't know a lot about it. And I said, well, I don't know anything about it much. He said, you'll do fine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was literally the conversation. That was the conversation. You do fun, and uh, amazing, Defi- like genre-defining moments that are like, oh, you'll so figure it out. You'll figure it out. And so, uh, and I said, well, look, I got this business, Mo, and he goes, well, and I said, I don't want to sell it. It's only three years old, and he said, well, just run them both. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty smart at the time because I, I had two different staffs. I had a staff with Mo and I had a staff with EMI. And the thing I didn't really think through very well was just the personal cost of what it took to run those two businesses and felt like that even though they were both successful, you know, all I did was work. Mm -hmm. And so it was about three or four years later that EMI bought Mo Mm -hmm. as well. So I sold them two businesses mm. anyway and stayed at EMI. And right when I got there, uh, Rick Kua that worked in, in the department at first, he came, he came and he said, look, he said, we've started this web program called Worship Together. And he said, we do these little conferences here and there. And he said, you know, we have like 70,000 people that belong to this. And I was like, 70,000 people? And he's like, yeah, man, it's really big. Wow. You know, and I said, well, what do you do? And he said, we just kind of put their songs out there. Radio stations won't play their music. So I was pretty acquainted with that, you know, because yeah. I went through it with DNK and went through it with DC Talk, Naughty Adrenaline and others. And radio did not play worship music in those days. A lot of it was recorded live. Mm. Um, a lot of the quality of the recordings weren't up to what their standards were and that, that sort of thing. And uh, EMI had entered into negotiations, had not closed the deal yet with a, with a British company called Thank You Music. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I got to do was be part of bringing Thank You Music into EMI mm-hmm. and head writers like Matt Redman and Tim Hughes and Stuart Townend and Keith Getty and mm-hmm. these guys that were doing this thing from the UK and from Europe before it had really gotten over here in that way. There were, there were other kinds of worship music in America, but it was more M.O.R., you know, what Integrity Music was doing with Hosanna and some of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. These guys were doing more rock band worship, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You know, but that's yeah. kind of what it was. And and writing fantastic songs. And so, back to the Worship Together thing, that was a program that was started before I got there. I got to be part of watching it grow and trying to figure out how to make it grow. Mm. And when I left uh, Capital, as it was called in 2014, we had transitioned from EMI to Capital. It's a whole other story. But uh, we had almost 800,000 members of worship together. 
It's amazing. Wow. And it's it's a interesting, it's not a consumer website. It's really a what you call in business a B2B business to business, because those members were worship leaders around the world that accessed our program mm. to find what they wanted to sing next Sunday. Mm. That was basically the mantra. Yeah. So you, know. you had built the entire pipeline with that, man. And, and I think there's just something really big there in that whole, it doesn't sound like you had any sort of training or somebody sat you down and said, okay, these are, this is everything you need to know about worship music. This is everything you need to know about running a publishing company. This is everything. No, I didn't. You know, I, I had some mentors along the way. Richard Green, music attorney, definitely mentored me and taught me the business side of things. And, you know, uh, back from my D, Richard and I started working together in 1981. He was DNK's manager. And then he became Forefront's, or DNK's attorney, I mean, mm. then became Forefront's attorney. And then he became general counsel at EMI. So I learned a lot of the business acumen from him, you mm. know. But I've usually found that people are good at stuff, can be good at a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And you can't be any better than the people that you surround yourself with, mm-hmm. you know. And I would joke with my staff, you know, if other people aren't trying to hire you, you know, maybe I don't have the best person, mm-hmm. you know, because you should be sought after. Mm-hmm. And then I got to figure out a way to make you happy to stay with me. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? You want to be so, fighting to keep your people. Yeah. Yeah, you do because you, you want the best people. And if you can multiply yourself exponentially through having even better people than you, you know, it's amazing what you can do. Yeah. Well, that, that's another thing that I, I hear in your story is just these relationships that carry over from business to business, from era to era, from you know, Richard Green as band attorney to label attorney, I hear a, whether it's a loyalty or just a, a, an importance in keep those relationships. Like just, you don't need to, you, you're not hopping around a lot in terms of that. I think relationships are probably the most important thing in business and in life, you know, and then the second, and we could probably prioritize these differently, but you have to, you have to bring value to a business relationship for people to want to work with you, mm. you know. And um, I mean, I think the reason that I was able to keep Toby Mack, I mean, he and I had a business relationship from day one through the day that I walked out of the office. Mm. Somebody like that, and he's a really smart guy, but is that he always felt like that I had his back. Mm. And I always brought value to the relationship. And it's a give and take. You know, sometimes you have to say, there ain't no more money. Mm -hmm. You know, you got it all. There's no more to give. And if, you know, if you, I mean, I got to have some, a little bit too. But, you know, I think transparency and relationship are are really in value, are really important in building long-term loyalty. Mm. You know, and... uh, I consult people now from time to time, and I've I've done some really, I think, awesome things since I've been out of the office. Mm -hmm. And usually when you're negotiating with very smart people, you know, I find that transparency is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, just you you don't want to find out that there's something you didn't know, Mm -hmm. you know. 
and you want people to trust you. Mm-hmm. You say, look, here's my cards. Here's all I got. Mm-hmm. Show me your cards. Show me all you got. Yeah. You know, and then maybe we can find a way to work together. But if we can't, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's where I went with that sort of thing. And as a result, I did have very long relationships. Yeah. You yeah. know. Well, I can tell that for sure. Yeah. So it's important. So good. It is important. Yeah. Yeah. And you 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 see it in the book too. I mean, I'm just gonna do a little everybody needs to get the book. Get the book, which comes out what, June twenty sixth. June twenty sixth. We'll I mean, link it in our description under the video. You can buy it straight from there. There's so, so many amazing stories and um yeah, it's, it, I was saying today how it feels like a, it's like a history lesson of the Christian music industry. And I just think that everybody that's in the industry should definitely read it because you will learn so much about not only about your story, but what it takes to be an artist, what it takes to be a songwriter, a business person in the industry. So it's it was a really good book. Well, thank you. And, I, you know, it's it's my story and it's my family's story. And uh, yeah, I feel very honored and very blessed that I was allowed to be part of this industry mm. and watch it grow, mm-hmm. complete with all of its awards and issues and different things that, you know, not unlike the church itself. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, we see yeah. those kind of things no matter where we go. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and was able to, to find uh, some good success in a lot of different mm-hmm. places in the industry. Mm, you know. Well, it's definitely been, I mean, for me, it's been an honor to, you know, get a chance to work with you and just be a part of some really amazing moments in the industry. So it was fun to fun to read. Yeah. Books. Well, thank you. So can you talk about this idea of your four-year commitment principle? What is that? Well, when Susan and I, my wife, my lovely wife, uh, there's a little bit of history I've got to go back into a little bit. Yeah. That we had been married for about, she says, nine months and 15 minutes, you know, <laughs> and when we had our first baby. <laughs> Actually, it might have been more like nine months and five minutes. Yeah. You know? But anyway, it was pretty quick. So we, we, we had our first baby. We were married at 19. Wow. And had our first child, first year of marriage. And I had to do what any father has to do. I have to support my family, you know? So I got a job doing construction work, which I literally hated. Mm. And over the course of a couple of years, I built kind of a successful business doing construction work that I hated. Mm. But at the same time, I got pretty embittered by it all. You know, felt like, well, God, you know, didn't you call me to be a rock star? That's like a lot more fun. You know, and I'm getting up at five in the morning and digging ditches, you know. And so uh, I went through, and my family went through with me a, a period of time that was very difficult to where that got up to go to work one morning and I couldn't walk. Mm. And uh, turned out I had ruptured some some disc in my spine. And this is in the you know, middle ages of back surgery, you know, dark ages of back surgery. In 1975, 76 era, and was hospitalized and on my back for almost a year. And whatever little bit we had in our life, we lost. 
had to move in with my parents, which was very, you know, humbling, to say the least. And uh, Susan got a job at a mortgage company, and I was taking care of our little girl and living with my parents, just thinking, what in the world has happened to me, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was that period of time that God worked in my heart probably more than any other time in my life when I had an epiphany, I call it, which was kind of a reckoning with God to where that I felt like that that God was showing me. He said, like, Eddie, he said, all those things that you thought stood in your way of serving me, he said, good news is, is you got nothing left, man. Mm-hmm. You got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, so now you can do what I ask you to do because wow. there's no fear. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was pretty freeing, really. Mm. And so uh, Dana Key, my partner, had actually come to me and he said, man, I I think we ought to get the band back together. He said, you know, we did some great stuff and saw some some people's lives get changed along the way. And, you know, I think we ought to get back together. And so I went to Susan and said, sweetie, you know, Dana wants to get the band back together, but I don't want to do this unless we're in this together. Hmm. And so we came to this this plan that was what we call our four-year plan. There was some basis to that. At that point in time, the Small Business Administration basically put out their materials that if you don't have three years to dedicate to a business, that you're you're more apt to fail, mm. you know. And so we decided to give it four. And we were like, whatever it takes, if I got to work three jobs, if Susan has to work, you know, whatever it takes, if we got to live here, we got to live there, you know, we're going to give this thing everything we've got for four years. Now, at the time, you know, we were on welfare and food stamps. Wow. Oh, yeah. Living with my mom and dad. We had nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took just about every second of four years for us to be able to at least feed our kids without having to do construction or that. But, you know, at the end of four years, we were going to reassess where we were, but we were going to do whatever it took. I think it's a good lesson for anybody especially in the entertainment business or in any business, really, you have to dedicate yourself to a period of time that because you know, you're not going to find quick success, mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do, but not usually. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not willing to do what it takes, and it may be working at Starbucks, you know, I would have songwriters come to me all the time and or artists and say, man, can't you help me? where I don't have to work at Starbucks. And I said, well, why would I want to do that? I said, I don't I don't want to change that part of your life. I kind of like it that you don't want to work there anymore. I kind of get that, you know, but I don't want you to get in debt with me to the extent that it's going to, you know, it's kind of like college debt that mm-hmm. three years down the road, you're going to, you know, be in a hole that's going to be difficult to dig out of. I would rather you be bivocational and do what it takes, and let's have success together, you know? And it doesn't mean I can't help you some. I can help you some, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I would. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's wrong to be bivocational, and that means holding two jobs. Well, you start any business. Well, you get it off. 
chances are, if you guys look at your own careers, there was a time in your life you did that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my, mine was very parallel to yours. I, so, as an artist, I, I never, and I'm guessing that first four years was about DeGarmo and Key. Mm-hmm. So four years into, into that. For me, when I was doing the artist thing, I was paying my bills by producing records. There you so go. I was doing the exact same thing. Same back, thing, different way. And that's, and that's how I got into it, was got introduced to... Funny enough, this is where the stories are so... I almost get goosebumps just thinking about it because you were involved, in, obviously, with Forefront and just looking at this list of, you know, DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline, Jeff Moore in the Distance. All three of those were probably within my first five records that I owned ever. How about that? And um, the only one that's not on the list is, New- is Newsboys, Take Me to Your Leader, but Star Song. And that yeah. was all with kind of within the same family. So, yeah. but going going back to the point of you know that four year commitment, I think so many people nowadays, um, and and I don't know if you could speak to this, but it's it's the YouTube generation, it's the American Idol generation, where you know whether it's entitlement or just access, I don't know, or ease of, but people don't really seem to understand that. A lot of people don't, you know, and. I actually talk about this in the book as well, is what I would look for in an artist when I would sign them, you know? Can we dive into that? Because yeah, I, sure I, I'd i love to, I mean, obviously, we'll read the book and... Well, from, from, from a creative it. perspective, I would categorize it in three different areas. Songwriting, virtuosity, and charisma, mm-hmm. you know? And you can have an artist that's such a great songwriter that they don't necessarily have to, you know, be a virtuoso and they don't have to maybe have what we would think of as charisma or the world actually might call sex appeal, if you will. And that songwriter might be Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's not the best singer in the world, although he's easy to recognize. And his charisma is, he's just kind of aloof. Mm. And nothing disrespectful, but he's such a great songwriter, the other two categories aren't important. You can have the same thing with a virtuoso, you know, somebody like, you know, Josh Groban or somebody, or Celine Dion. Celine Dion, or, you know, there's a plethora of people we could talk about, but their talent is so extreme that they don't have to be a great songwriter. Mm. They don't have to necessarily, you know, look like a poster child because mm. their talent is so extreme. Mm. And then you can have a person that is so doggone beautiful or have so much charisma if they're not beautiful that maybe they're not a great songwriter and they're not, you know, um, necessarily a virtuoso. Mm. You know, pop music generates some of those types of artists, teenage pop for sure, you know, to where it's really more about the image and the poster and somebody else creates the music, if you will. Sure. We've all seen that. So that's from a talent side. So I would try to identify what was important on the talent side. Then there's a whole nother side that's all about fortitude and integrity and character. And an artist that has fortitude, integrity, and character can eclipse a lot of the talent side, mm-hmm. you know, because they work hard, because they show up, because they can be trusted, you know, and they're, they're you know, they 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 want it more than you do. Mm-hmm. 
They have to want it more than you. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we've all worked with artists that we kind of want it more than them mm -hmm. sometimes. You know, that makes it very difficult. Yeah. But when they want it more than you and they have good character and good integrity, you know, that to me, in some respects, and in a lot of respects, was more important than the talent side. Mm. I, I found in my career I could take somebody with high character further mm -hmm. than I could somebody with low character and high talent. Mm. So I would always sign character before talent. Mm. Now, the, the key is if you can find somebody with high character that's very talented, you know, the stars are the limit. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, how do you how do you judge that? Because you obviously have to judge that rather quickly. Well, you do. I mean, you know, you you can usually take a few meetings with somebody, and you can kind of tell about who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, talent's pretty subjective. Yeah, you know, and um, depending on the genre of music that you're addressing, you know, some of us may think some something's talented in a different way than what others might. Uh, to me, the most important thing talent-wise was really to be uh, recognizable and identifiable, mm. if you will. Mm. You know, I, I use Dylan as an example, but, you know, we all know it's him when he sings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, we all know it's him when he sings. You know, Eminem, we kind of all know it's him when he raps. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And if you can find somebody that's that identifiable... I think it, it it helps you immensely in the marketing aspect of music, mm. you know, because people can can latch on to who it is, whether or not if they like it, mm. you know. It, you have to remember the cancer of art is indifference. You want to spark an emotion, mm. and sometimes it can be just as powerful if they if they hate you, yeah, <laughs> as if they love you, yeah. You know, sometimes it can be, yeah. You know. And so, you know, we've seen we've seen that in all of our different artists mm -hmm. we go to. That's the wonderful thing about art mm -hmm. is that it can be something that one person likes and the other person despises. Yeah, it's polarizing. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got so many questions. I know Stacy has so many questions that we probably can't even fit them all into one interview. But let's just go through our last five, which we call the full circle five. So first one being, what is the book that you most commonly recommend to people? Gosh. <laughs> Besides from this one. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Well, I mean, this is going to sound like a pat answer, but it's really not. I, I think if, as a faith-based person that you need to know what the Scripture teaches you about mm -hmm. how to live. That's extremely important. Because if you don't know you can't be really expected to, to live out a life that's pleasing to God if you don't know what he expects, if you will. Mm. So I think that's I think that's very important. I'm an avid reader. You know, I just finished reading the Martin Luther biography by Eric McTaxis, mm. which is kind of like reading a math book. But, you know, uh, that would be my book today because as, as great as Luther was, he had his own faults. You know, but he's he's the guy most responsible mm -hmm. for the Reformation. You mm -hmm. know, there's an old business book called In Search of Excellence that I think is a great book. Mm. You know, that that teaches us a lot about image and what people perceive you to be. Mm. 
that's really important, especially when you're building a, an artist career that's a public mm -hmm. platform career. For example, a, a good good thing I used to like think about, depending on where the audience perceives you coming from is how they will receive you or reject you many times. Mm. You know, for example, you know, if you were to take the great Billy Graham and if he were to come, if he, if he were still alive and say he was 50 years old and he went to his board and he says, you know, man, I think I want to do some business seminars. I don't really want to preach. I just want to talk about good business, right? Nothing wrong with that at all. But a lot of people would have thought of that. Well, why is he walking away from the gospel? And they would have had a negative impression, I mm -hmm. think, out of that move. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take somebody on the mainstream side, you know, and uh, this, I'm not picking on anybody, but, you know, Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. And Jay-Z says, you know, man, I've been thinking about this. Oh, my God. I don't know why I've been saying this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to talk more about that. You would find the Christian audience would say, oh, my gosh. What's happened with JC? Yeah. We want, we want to hear more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or a plethora of pop stars, you know? I mean, look what's happened in just the media with Kanye West mm -hmm. taking a stand on conservative politics, which is nothing uh, extraordinary other than from where he is perceived mm -hmm. to come from. Mm -hmm. yeah. You see? Yeah. And so the conservative people have really embraced his stand. I'm not sure they would embrace a lot about Kanye, but they embrace that, you know. <laughs> Maybe they would. I don't want to sell him short, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So perception in search of excellence talks a lot about that and those kinds of things and the way that the audience and the public perceives you. And so I think that's a good book. So good. We'll have to get that yeah, and we'll read it all together. I think so. I actually have that. That's an old I'm, one. I'm pretty sure you gave that one to yeah, me. Yeah, so. probably did. I've heard that all, not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. So have you always been one? I have. I, I have. I've been an avid reader most of my life. I became an extreme reader in my touring years mm. on a tour bus. Yeah. Mm. You got you lots know, of time. Got lots of time. <laughs> you know. And so I still read every day. You know, every night before I go to bed, I'll read for 30 minutes or an hour yeah. or something. And yeah. sometimes it's just mindless. Yeah. You know, David Baldacci or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, because we've, we've heard obviously a lot about a lot of the wins. Um, and you, you touched briefly on that period of food stamps and living in the parents' basement, but I've got a question about failure. Failure obviously can turn into a, a great thing in our lives if it changes our perspective or behavior on the way we, you know, act or something. So in that sense, do you have a favorite failure? Oh my gosh, a favorite failure. That's like a double F. <laughs> <laughs> Alliteration for our That's songwriter right. audience. That's right. <laughs> There was, you know, coming from Memphis, I was always a fan of blues music. And early in Forefront, I signed a couple artists that I that did that kind of music. One dear friend, he's passed away now, named Larry Howard. And Larry played blues guitar in a rock band called Grinder Switch. And he had a voice that kind of sounded like Ray Charles, if you will. And 
so I did a couple records on him that just had no success whatsoever, you know. So that was a good failure story about it wasn't that I was making bad music. It was about that the marketplace wasn't willing to accept the music that I was making, you know. And, I mean, you you know, we talked a little bit about that you have to be willing to shake hands with your audience Mm -hmm. at a certain level. And the intelligent artist is flexible enough to understand what that means. You know, I've worked with some artists, and I know I'm straying from the question a little bit, but I've worked with some artists that are like, no, man, this is how I do it. This is it. This is it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And there's a place for all that. But then there's a place to understand, you know, once you commercialize your art, you know, you're going to respond to the audience. It's human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to respond to, to what people will pay for, mm-hmm. which is very different than what you create sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I think if, if, you, if you get people like you and you and the rest of these people around you and want to commercialize your art, you know, so that you can do it again next year and the year after, make a living at it, if you will, you have to respond to the audience. So anyway, I responded to the audience. I had to drop Larry Howard, yeah. you know, signed another artist, a great friend of mine named Michael Anderson, made a couple of records on him. He had a couple of big country hits back in the early 90s. Mm. And I think I made fantastic records on him. And I mean, they, they sold pitifully, mm. you know. Mm. You know. People would ask me from time to time, well, how did you become so successful? Well, I was really only successful like 51% of the time. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty okay. good track record. Yeah. But, you know, if you're successful more than you're not successful, yeah. uh, I think you can usually find a way through. And, and I have found that successful people are very flexible mm-hmm. in understanding their failures and how mm-hmm. to change course, alter a little bit about what you do, mm-hmm. you know to become successful. And, you know, to that point, when artists would come and sit with me and say, can can you help me? You know, well, what do you want me to help you do? Well, can you help me, you know, sell a lot of CDs or, or downloads or stream or whatever today? But, you know, can, well, yeah, but you're going to have to respond to the audience somehow. And if you're not willing to do that, I'd say that's commendable. You know, but don't quit your daytime job. Just do it and you can paint or create whatever you want to create. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. And you don't certainly don't need some knothead like me telling you what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good. Okay. Um, so before you dove fully in, and this is a little bit of a strange question because it sounds like you were kind of always in, maybe barring that period of construction in your life but was there was there one thing that you could identify that maybe held you back in that season like why 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 did you do that season why did you do construction and not just go full in on music the the whole time well I got married really young you know and you know I'm absolutely in love with my wife and we've been married 45 years and uh, I think she you know has been the rock that's carried me through a lot of this, but it's easier many times on a financial level if you're single 
I think, you know, especially when you're starting businesses and that sort of thing. So once you make a decision that you're going to bring your family into it, um, your responsibilities shift a little bit, Mm -hmm. and they should. They should shift Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to that end, I would encourage artists, you know, don't drag your family down, you know, don't put a noose around their neck and take them to the bottom of the river. Mm. You know, you got to know when to fold them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's a time. Yeah. You know, that was back to my four years. Mm-hmm. If 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 we couldn't have figured out a way to support our family in that period of time, I was okay to fold them. Uh, somewhere in there, there's a question. Yeah. That no, you that's asked me. That's good. Uh, that you you answered it very well. So. Uh, on the other side of this, all you're 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 writing a book, you're doing all this stuff, you're consulting with people. What is something that is working for you right now? Oh my gosh! Well, when I when I left Capital in 2014, when I turned 60, and my boss said to me, "Why in the world would you leave this job? You're on top of the industry." I said to him, "I said, Mary, I remember this conversation very clearly." I said. Uh, you know, my father passed away at 70. I have an older brother that passed away at 67. As much as I love you, I don't want to be sitting here when that Mm -hmm. happens. I want to spend time with my family. Mm -hmm. And I have five wonderful grandkids, two great daughters, and I've been able to really focus, I think, in with them Mm -hmm. in in, in a cool way in the last four years that I wasn't able to do before. I went back and finished my college education. You know, I graduated uh, with a Bachelor of Arts and walked across the platform and accepted my diploma in front of my five grandkids. Mm. I dropped out to chase music in 76. Yeah. I promised my mom I would do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, she's like, son, you yeah. better finish school. You. And so, and she's she's been gone for a lot of years, but I could mm-hmm. still see that wagging yeah. finger. Yeah. So when I had time to go back to school, I did because I was, I made a promise mm-hmm. and I wanted to fulfill my promise to her. So I graduated mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of hanging out and talking to people like you. Yeah. You know, it's good. Well, the, the last question that we always ask, I'm not even sure how in the world it could apply to you because it feels like you've just achieved such a level of success that, it, but I'll just ask it anyway and um, see what your response is because you always give great responses. Mm. So if you woke up tomorrow morning, still possess all the knowledge and relationships and experiences that you have, but your entire business or industry, it all just kind of went away and, and you had to start from scratch and you could do anything that you want, what would you do? Anything that I want. Yeah. That's always a problem. that's always a problem you know options can be a curse you know Mm -hmm. they can be and uh, uh, oh I don't know if I could do anything I mean to sound hyper spiritual and I don't want a soapbox on it but what's important to me in my life today is at the end of my days for God to say well done good and faithful Mm -hmm. servant that's very important to me you know I've I've been way more successful than I ever dreamed I would be, you know? And I never got in Christian music to make money, but I've made way more money than I ever thought was conceivable, Mm. you know? Mm. And so I'm not driven by those kinds of things the same way. Mm. I I want to make a genuine impact in people's lives. 
you know, one thing I found in this book that you know, I've worked with a lot of people from different backgrounds through the years, and I've sent them this book, and it's it's kind of a personal testimony and witness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a Christian book. My story, I mean, Jesus changed my life, so this story has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. And I found that even folks from different backgrounds respond to that part of it pretty positively. And I love that part. Yeah. yeah. If I was going to do anything, most of my success in my career, I'll say this, has been from the ability to see what is not there, you know, (laughs) and look around wherever, you know, whatever you make, whatever your job is, if you want to be in business, look around at what's not there, Mm. you know. Uh, when I signed Rebecca St. James, Rebecca Smallbone was her name. Mm. Specifically, I was looking to sign an artist that spoke to their peers that was a girl because all of the artists in Christian music at that time were in their mid to late 30s. And I'm like, where can I find a 15-year-old, 14-year-old that can speak to their peers? Mm. When we signed DC Talk, you know, it was all about doing hip-hop to a group of audience that were fans of that and it didn't really exist in Christian music. Mm. You know, when uh, I discovered Skillet, Mm. it was like, oh my gosh, first of all, John Cooper is the ultimate maniac that is the perfect guy that's going to bug me at three in the morning because he can't find his CD in Walmart somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what I mean? Because you got to have that. Yeah. You got to have that. Well, he wants it more than you, right? Go back to that. That's right. Yeah. And he's got a voice that like it or hate it, we don't argue about who it is. And, you know, he's just passionate as you can be. And, you know, I think it's going to work because it's not an option for it not to <laughs> yeah. with him. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so find what's not there mm. and try to build your value around that. And, I, you know, I, I think that's a big key to what God has allowed me to be part of when I started in the Christian rock band, at least in the South. We didn't know it existed. We were doing something that didn't exist. When I started a Christian record company, there really wasn't a record label that was totally focused on this one age group of people. Mm. You know, not a style as much as it's an age group. Yeah. You know, because we had hip hop and rock and all points in between. And, uh, you know, when I got in the independent publishing business, there really wasn't anybody in Christian music. It, it existed in pop and country for sure that worked with music producers and helped them maximize their songwriting efforts. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I did. Yeah. worked out. So good. Well, um, we do encourage all of our listeners and viewers to check out your book. How can people interact with you on? So you're actually pretty active on social media. I follow you on there. Well, active is probably a push, you know, but <laughs> I am on there. How, how can people find you on there? What's your uh, your handle? Oh, my gosh. Well, you can certainly find me on Facebook, you okay. know, just Eddie DiCarmo. All right. And on Facebook. And I'm not the best Twitter guy in the world, you know. Okay. Occasionally, I do a little Instagram. You're on Instagram. Yeah, you're on Instagram. I follow you on Instagram. Bit, you know. Okay. And, uh, uh, 
The book is available everywhere now. Great. Mm-hmm. You can't get it until June 26th, but you can certainly order it. Really? So it, it's out there, and the, the publisher is taking it wide around the world. They're a large publisher, so. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been just an absolute joy, and I wish we could sit here all day so and ask you questions, but I know you're a busy man and got family to get home to, I'm, I'm sure. not as busy as you. <laughs> so, I'm not near as busy. It was a time. Well, we're in a different, anymore. yeah, I'm in a different part of my of my career, but yeah, thank you so much for um, well, thank you just being so generous with your stories and knowledge and wisdom, and again, I am personally really excited to read this. Stacey's already vouched. This is yours. For it, so. Oh, all right. So, there you go. There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eddie. All right, thank you. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you've been with us on the Made It in Music podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Next episode features... To American... What do all those songs have in common? Well, Carrie Barlow is the hit songwriter in common with all of those songs. And he is with us on the next episode of the Made It Music podcast. You have any ideas for the show? Tweet us at official FC Music or follow us on Instagram and DM us there. Love to hear from you. The Made It Music podcast is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jordan Salamone. Oh, oh, oh.